Blessed be the Lord, for he has wonderfully shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Those are the last five verses of Psalm 31, which is the psalm appointed for today, Monday, April the 4th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. I appreciate it. Um, Today, we're continuing our look at Jeremiah's prophecy, chapter 24, verses 1 to 10, in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 to 17, and then the epistle is Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 9, verses 19 to 33. If, if, if you had one thing probably to say about these um, lessons today, it would be God has a plan and purpose for everything. We're going to go back in time a little bit to the, if you remember the beginning of the prophecy that was given to Jeremiah, one of the things um, that God did to begin that work would, was to say, show him visions and ask him what he saw. And then God would explain what it was that he saw, the meaning of what he saw. <clears throat> and we're going to do that again today. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had been taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, I'm sorry, let's go back and do that again. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metalworkers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like the first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, So I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I'll set my eyes on them for good, and I'll bring them back to this land. I'll build them up and not tear them down. I'll plant them and not pluck them up. I'll give them a heart to know that I'm the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I'll be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. So what we're seeing is, is I mean, it begins with the horrible news that Jeconiah, the officials of Judah, and the craftsmen, people that would have included in, in that whole group, that would have included people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they've been taken into exile, and, what, and it sounds like an awful thing, but then God says here, I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. So it was God's purpose and plan to send that group of people up to Babylon, to preserve them there. He has plans for good while they're there in Babylon. He will do them good and will continue to bless them even in the land of exile and the land of sojourn. And so it's God's will that his people in this particular instance go to Babylonia. They're cooperating with the will of God by going there. It's his plan, not the King Nebuchadnezzar's plan. No, this is God's plan. It happens that those two things align, but God purposed all this in advance and made Nebuchadnezzar the kind of king who would do the things that he's doing here and bringing those people to Babylon rather than destroying them. The the sort of tactic or strategy that um, 
Nebuchadnezzar had for the way that he would um, handle nations that were conquered was what he wanted to do was what the Romans later actually did, and he wanted to bring you from the land where you were to the land of Babylon, that you might see how beautiful and wonderful this place was, that that God, whatever, the, however you define that, was clearly blessing Babylon. And so they, they wanted to show the superiority of Babylonian culture. So they bring people, the, the sort of top people in the country that was conquered to Babylon, that they might become good little Babylonians. And then later, if they wanted, they could go back. It, but why would you want to? But it, so it increased the, the knowledge power in Babylon, while at the same time showing the superior Babylonian culture to all these other sort of rubes that, well, the proof is they were conquered, right? So they needed a cultural lesson. They, ne- they needed to step up their game. And, and how better to do that than to observe the greatest culture on earth coming to Babylon? So, but God said, I have a plan for you there. And so what happens is they have a witness there. Daniel has a witness there, just like Joseph did when Joseph went down to Egypt. The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have a witness there. And we know that this witness persevered because, well, those magi, the wise men who came to see Jesus from afar, or came from afar to see Jesus, um, they are the descendants of these people in Babylon. They're, they're the people who saw, the, or whose, whose families experienced the witness of Daniel. And so they began to study the scriptures of Daniel because they wanted to know where he got wisdom. Well, he got it partially through uh, scripture, obviously, but he, what he got it from more was faith and trust in revelation given to him by God. So if to the extent that that can lead you to faith, it's a wonderful thing. So here we see that, that God says, I'm going to bless these people, and I'm going to bring them back, and I'm going to plant them here, and, and I will never pluck them up. I'm going to build them up and not tear them down. But, <laughs> thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt." So he knew that there would be a portion of the people who refused to go to Babylon and would make a choice, one or the other. They would choose to stay in this devastated land, or they would flee to Egypt, with whom they had attempted to make um, a defensive pact that would, that would prevent the Babylonians from coming down and destroying the city, which failed, obviously. He says, I'll make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, and a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. So they're not cooperating with the will of God. They're coming up with their own plan based on their own, quote-unquote, wisdom. They've devised a plan in their hearts instead of waiting on the Lord, which was from that psalm that I read earlier, blessed are those who wait upon the Lord. And then when you wait, you wait for the purpose of hearing or seeing him act. And then you move out and you move forward. Here, these people have decided this is not a good thing. And Jeremiah is being told it's a very good thing. You need to go to Babylon. And they reject him, and they reject his word. And in doing so, they reject God and his word. In the gospel today, there are 
that we've we've moved forward from chapter six where we were last week, and now we're into chapter nine. Well, it's partially because we've done, we've already looked at chapter seven and eight. So here we are. As they passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and and remember, this was all moving towards going to Jerusalem at this time. Um, we skipped, so you know, because we went back and picked up chapter six, we, we kind of lost the thread of where, where everything might be in, in space and time. So as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And, and that was the way they thought about those kinds of issues, that sin created deformities and abnormalities and things that were not whole and perfect. So the the assumption was someone had sinned to cause this. And we know that everybody thinks this because the disciples ask it here. And then at the end of the passage, the Pharisees hearken back to that same idea. So Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. So Jesus disabuses them of the notion that sin was involved that caused this this man to be born blind. It wasn't his sin or his parents' sin. No, it was something God planned. And, I, you know, I, I think I probably mentioned this in the podcast before, but we had um, a guy at the church that I served in before who was very ill. He was dying. And um, somewhere along the way, the there was a group of people who prayed for this guy and, and kind of looked after him. And then I went to see him, and um, they, they greeted me very warmly and affectionately. And, and then after I talked to him, by the time I finished, they were gone. And after that, when I went and visit, visited, nobody would be there except him and me. Only later did I find out two things. One is that they had read some book that indicated that the words, by his stripes we are healed, meant that everybody got perfect healing in this life. And so they had not allowed the man, not talked to him about it, nor would they allow him to really talk about death. And and I did because, well, I wasn't part of that little cult that believed that. Um, And then also there was a woman that came to me at one point and said, "Uh, John, I I know what's wrong with this guy. I said, well, me too. He has lung cancer. And she said, no, that's what it is, is, is that he has unconfessed sin in his life. And and she really believed that was a consequence of that. And, And I've certainly known plenty of people along the way who have done that. I had a friend who had some people come to pray for his daughter who was born with a birth defect. And they, as they were leaving, he was on the front porch and they said, well, this is all because you don't have any faith. I mean, it's it's unbelievable the things that people will say, and and not only that, the things that people will think. And I'm not sure which is more toxic. You know, I'd rather have you say it because then I can you know come down your throat. Um, but but it, but people just believe that, and we tend to have those same kinds of ideas. And this it comes down to karma, right? If if you can't determine where that sin is that's associated with this problem, then it's karma. Right? So you believe that because of this, God's doing this as punishment, and, and you've got to, you know, it, it's, you deserve this. So Jesus says, no, 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 none of that's true. <clears throat> Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The, they must have been near to Jerusalem because the pool of Siloam is in Jerusalem. And it's a place where you could go take the ritual bath, the mikvah, 
that came along with multiple different issues. After you made confession, you would you would go and take a mikvah. After women would go after their monthly periods and and cleanse themselves because there was there was a death that had occurred. That's the point of the the uh, issue of of menstrual blood becoming something that you don't want to come into contact with and you don't want them to come into the temple is because a death has essentially occurred. There was an egg that failed to, to, you know, to be impregnated. So that's why there's this sort of stigma around menstrual blood. It's, it's not because they thought blood was impure. It's exactly the opposite. They're mourning a death that's occurred, the death of that egg that failed to be impregnated. So we, that's the reason for that prohibition. But anyway, this pool of Siloam is there in uh, Jerusalem. And, and so he, they must have been close enough that, that Jesus said, go to the pool of Siloam and, and wash there, wash off the mud that I made. Now, there's two problems. One of those is Jesus worked. He worked by making mud. As tiny amount of mud as that would be, that's a sin as defined by the Talmud, that he did work, some sort of work on the Sabbath. And then not only that, because he did that work, and then he, he did two other things, right? So he, he caused this other person to either have to spend the rest of the day, the Sabbath, in uh, with this mud on his eyes, or he could go wash it off. And so he, he created a situation where this person might sin. And then not only that, he told him to go and sin. <laughs> he told him to go and sin by washing this off. Same thing that he did with the man at the pool of Bethesda, which is also in Jerusalem. He, with him, remember what he did was he told him to pick up his bed and walk. Now, if he just got up and walked, that would be okay as long as he didn't walk over a certain distance. But to show the hypocrisy of, of this this whole Sabbath-breaking thing, you could do certain kinds of work. I mean, there were certain kinds of work to save a life or, or to, to help something that's in danger. Those are all fine. And even walking is fine up to a certain distance from your home. So what you would do is something like this. You'd put some sort of personal article there, like a suitcase with some of your clothing in it, and you will establish the, another house. So you could walk from one house to the other. In that way, if you wanted to, if you needed to go somewhere that was twice as far on the Sabbath as was allowed, then then you did that. You put the suitcase there, so you've established at least a temporary residence there, and now you can go that same distance again. So there, there's always ways to get around things. Jesus doesn't play the game, though, and so he tells him to do this. So the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And somebody said, it's he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, <laughs> I'm the man. So they said to him, then, how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Well, why did he not know? He had never seen Jesus. He couldn't look. He couldn't pick him out in a crowd because <laughs> he was blind. And then he went away, and then he came back, and then they started asking him this question. He couldn't identify Jesus. The only way he could have known where Jesus was if somebody had told him. He's right over there. Well, apparently he hadn't, and we're going to see it again when Jesus speaks with him. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he'd received his sight. And he tells a, a shorter version of the story this time. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. 
you know, I'm rolling my eyes, you didn't see that. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. So he doesn't know. All he knows is, is that, that he has been healed. And these are things he expects people who would be prophets to do. There's some prophet foretells. You know, so he, he's giving the, the foretelling of the coming of the kingdom, and it's a prophetic word. It's a, it's a visible prophetic word in the same way the vision that Jeremiah saw was a visible prophetic word, and it just needs interpretation. And so that's exactly what's going on here, and that's the reason that he says he's a prophet. There's, there's, a, there's a prophetic word contained in what Jesus does. In the Romans passage, he says, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault, he being God, for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but for also from the Gentiles. So what Paul's saying here is, is that it, it's this, he's comparing it essentially to what happens when God says that you're going to have to spend time in Egypt before you can come into the land because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete or it's not yet filled the land, whichever way you want to translate it. And so what, what Paul's suggesting here is exactly the same thing, is, is that, that God needed to fill the earth with those he had foreknown and predestined for salvation, knowing that in the middle of all that would be people who would make their lives miserable. Well, Jesus does the same thing with the parable of the wheat and tares. And so he understands in the same way that Jesus does that, that God has a purpose and a plan. He doesn't necessarily reveal that to you. You know, I think that's the thing is he's saying you need to be a little more humble when you come before the Lord. He knows a lot more than you do, and he has a lot more power than you do, but he is ultimately your Lord. And I've seen this in uh, certainly in my own life, but in the lives of others who really just push back against Calvinist understanding of the world. With When we talk about, no, we don't have free will. Our will is bound. It's part of the fall. And then, so we no longer are able, because we're so completely fallen, to, to know him and to reach out for him. It's only when he reaches for us that we reach back to him. It's because he has predestined us for that. And, and I know that, that it's a hard thing, but it's part of, in my mind, submitting to him because it's so shot through all of everything. Jesus talks about it, talks about those the Father has given me will come to me. And unless the Father draws you, all those kinds of things. It's, so it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing to submit completely to the sovereignty and the lordship of God and believe that this is all good because you love these people. Well, if you love them, then pray for them. Pray that the Lord will draw them to him, that that, that would be the, the end result of the experience you have now of feeling like, well, they're lost. And so what Paul says is, is that he's a man fully submitted to God. He knows the reality is that he had spent his whole life studying scriptures and things pertaining thereto, 
the, like the oral traditions and all that. He, he spent his life doing that, and, and it failed him utterly to know God. He didn't recognize him at all. In fact, he, he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. And so Paul knows that it takes an act of God for people to come to know the truth. He says, as indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. He's speaking about the Gentiles here. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So he's speaking to primarily, well, he's speaking to both Jews and Gentiles there, but, but he's giving comfort to the Gentiles, and he's giving theological understanding to, to his own people, the Jews, about what God's doing as far as bringing in the Gentiles into the covenant. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So what he's saying here is, is that, okay, he's bringing in some Gentiles, but not all Israel will be saved. There's a difference and a distinction that... I, I, the, I read some stuff recently that talked about who is it that what who of Israel has a right to to be in the uh, the world to come, and the answer is all Israel, okay. But <laughs> then they modify that and say those people who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead and the li- and the life of the world to come won't participate. They look like Israel. These are people like the Sadducees. They, they look like Israel. They claim to be part of Israel, but they have no right in the world to come. And therefore, if you match those two questions and answers, the, the, so all Israel has a right to participate in the life of the world to come, but those who deny the resurrection don't. So what they're saying is, is that if all Israel gets in and these other people don't, then they're not part of Israel, no matter how they were born, because they don't believe. And because they don't believe, they don't have any right to participate in something they don't believe in. So then, then he goes on after the Isaiah passage, Isaiah predicted, it says, um, which is an odd thing because he prophesied it, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, that, that he said, you know, we're no better than the rest of humanity. If the Lord didn't have mercy, if he didn't continue to bless us, then, then we would be wiped out like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, righteousness by faith, but Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it's written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, God's got a plan and a purpose, even for the stone of stumbling. So all these things that, that God puts out there, they're roadblocks that have to be overcome, and they can only become in, overcome in one way. It's not by works. It's completely by faith in his Son.